The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel 7. We will see how the Lord allows... My hope is to wrap up Samuel today. We've moved through the hope for the king priest to the bad portrait of the king in Saul, the rise of David, and God's placement now of David on the throne. Today we are going to look at the covenant that God makes with David. And then, lest we think David is it, the one upon whom all the hopes of the ages rest, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Jacob, the offspring of Judah, who would crush the head of the serpent and establish peace in the world, lest we think he's it, we get the story of David and Bathsheba. And so it pushes our eyes further ahead in anticipation of one greater than Dave. So we are right here, and then we will cover his dishonoring act, Lord willing. So, 2 Samuel chapter 7. The outline is up on the screen. You also have a basic outline, not only of the book, but of this covenant that God makes with Dave. Um, And we're going to walk through it right now. So, 2 Samuel chapter 7, Now, when the king lived in his house, and Yahweh had given him rest from all of his enemies. That's pretty important right there. We have the language of Sabbath being experienced in the promised land. This is what God had told Israel would happen. Joshua is taking you in so that you can enjoy rest. And the promised land is a picture of the Garden of Eden. We see that in the final verses of Exodus 15 as Israel is singing their song at the sea after experiencing the Exodus, Moses portrays the promised land as God's mountain holy habitation. That's where Israel is headed. And the Garden of Eden is portrayed as a mountain because there's four rivers that flow out of it. It's up on a hill. And that's where the gods lived all throughout the ancient world. And most likely because That whole vision of God's being up on a mountain originated from the original garden setting where God's temple was established on the top. So there's a sense in which God is now reigning through his king and establishing peace in the world. Not only do we know that Israel is enjoying peace, but it's in this period that Egypt was low Assyria was low, Babylon was almost non-existent, and Israel was the chief empire in the entire ancient world. And yet there was still hostility and there was still sin. And so it's only a picture of the ultimate kingdom when all evil on a global scale will be put down. So we come to verse... Well, David says, I'm going to build you a house. No. How does it work? Yes. David says, I'm going to build you a house, God. And God says, no, you're not. You've killed too many people. I'll leave that to your son, but I'm going to build you a house. And by house, God doesn't mean 
a physical structure of a building, he means a dynasty. So we pick up in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. This is Nathan that God's talking to, Nathan the prophet. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now, we're going to see a series of radical promises that God is making. God's faithfulness in the present, what David's already experienced, then what God's promising to have happen in David's lifetime, and then promises that are bigger and beyond David's lifetime, and the Hebrew grammar and even, helpfully, our English texts help us see the shift. So I want you to track verses 8 and 9 deal with how God is favoring David right now. As he's praying, as God's talking to him, he's already experienced this much. I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies. That's your present experience. Now what does God from this point forward declare He's going to do in David's lifetime? This is verses 9 through 11. Middle of verse 9, you see, I have been, then the shift to I will. I will make for you a great name. Still to come, it's going to happen. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. So all enemy hostility is going to be put down, and Israel, in a way that, that uh, it, they've never experienced up till this time, in David's lifetime, Israel is going to know a level of peace and enemy hostility like never before. A level of enemy hostility being put away like never before. So that's David's lifetime. Then we see a shift at the end of verse 11. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. Unpack that for me. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so this is now what's going to happen after David's lifetime, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, fleshly, biological descendant, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So now you have the king of Israel called the son of God. Everybody with me? When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him like I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. All the promises complete, 
And then David picks up and responds. And all I'm going to read is the beginning of his response in verses 18 and 19. So David went in and sat before Yahweh and said, Who am I, O sovereign Yahweh? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O sovereign Yahweh. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is the instruction for mankind, O sovereign Yahweh. In verse 14, the Davidic son to come is called the Son of God. In verse 19, David calls himself servant. So I just want you to keep those images in mind. Israel's king is the servant of God. Israel's king is the son of God. That's the overall flow of the outline. Now... Lest we jump too quickly and say, this is all about Jesus. We have to be able to address verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But know this, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. So how do we understand that? We've got a son of David who's going to rise up, and when he commits iniquity, he'll get disciplined by God. And not only that, but the son who will commit iniquity, it says, verse 13, will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he's going to be a house builder, and if we wonder what kind of a house is that? Well, up toward the top of this chapter, verse 2, the king said to Nathan, See, I now dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So Nathan had said to his king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. What's David want to do? He wants to build a house. Verse 5, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house to dwell, for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up my people from the, from the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel when I commanded whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You're not going to build a house for me. I will build a house for you. But then we learn that the son is going to build a house. So, how are we to read this? Is this about Jesus or isn't it about Jesus? That's why my question is, is there messianic fulfillment here? Is Is this promise in alignment with the language of Hannah in chapter 2, verse 10, when she says God will establish His anointed one. He'll give strength to His king. How how does that fit in the trajectory starting from Genesis 3.15 that God would raise up a king? So, 
First off, I want to note that Solomon believed he was the first fulfillment of this promise. Notice what it says. Yahweh said to David, My father, says Solomon, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build a house. But your son, who shall be born to you, a son of your own body, shall build the house for my name. Now Yahweh has fulfilled this promise that he had made. For I have risen in the place of David my father, and I sit on the throne of Israel, as Yahweh promised, and I have built the house, namely the temple. This is the prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8. Now I have built the house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So Solomon sees himself as the fulfiller. Oh, that he could have gone a little further and recognized, oh, I'm also going to sin. That's not a good thing. Let me run from that. But he just follows right in line. So right off the bat, in light of verse 14 of chapter 7, I will be a father to him. He shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. Verse 15, But my steadfast love shall not depart. Verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So on the one hand, this is a prophecy, it appears, very directly to relate to Solomon. But then it says something else that's bigger than any Solomon. Namely, your throne will be forever. An eternal throne. An unchanging, everlasting, unstoppable throne. That's what I'm promising you, David. And so then that raises the question. The first son of Solomon is being pointed to, but an eternal throne requires one of two things as I'm trying to ponder it, so there's going to be someone on the throne in the line of David forever. That means either the Davidic dynasty will never end and people having our life expectancy will raise up and forever there will always be a new son on the throne. That's one option to have an eternal throne of David. Or the other option is that there will be one son of God, one servant who will rise up out of the line of David, whose throne will never end. Those are our two options. To have an eternal throne means there's either going to be one throne forever, or, or meaning one person on that throne forever, or a succession of numerous kings as we read about in the book of Kings. So where do we go with this? Well, the book of Hebrews quotes, right at the very beginning of first chapter, it quotes from 2 Samuel chapter 7 and says, guess what? One singular, obedient, servant son has risen. His name is Jesus. Here it is. Long ago, at times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. So tell me about Him. He's the radiance of the glory of God. 
the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power right now, moment by moment. Jesus is speaking, and because of that, you and I are breathing. If at any moment he stops speaking, we don't exist. He upholds the universe by his very word. That's kind of a powerful throne. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This royal servant, this son of God, gets to sit at the same level right next to the Father. The majesty on high, his throne is right there. Last Two weeks ago at the small group, it was so cute. So we're at uh, Tom and Abigail Dodds in our small group, and we have our two-hour time of worship and prayer and Bible study and fellowship, and then the fellowship blends over and we eat together. And Isaac, sorry, Ezra, my five-ish year old, um, he, um, he's adopted and he's very big, but he's supposed to be four. And um, he was, we set him at the table and then um, his good buddy Matt was sitting about a foot away and he said, Matt, come on, bring your chair over here so that it can be like we're sitting on the same chair together and nobody will know that it's any different. It was so cute. So he just wanted his little buddy Matt to be right there so that their arms were actually touching and they were each eating their food. After making purification, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2, which we're going to see a connection with with our passage. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's 2 Samuel 7. What is the writer of Hebrews doing? He's saying, Jesus is it. So yes... It pointed to Solomon, but Solomon was only a picture, a pointer himself to someone greater. And the ultimate fulfillment of those Davidic promises and this entire covenant rests on Christ. He is the ultimate Son of God, sitting on the Davidic throne. Or how about Luke? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation. That's used at the beginning of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, and then it's used at the end of her song at 1 Samuel 2. A horn of salvation, this image of um, like an ox, not a unicorn or a... Um, a rhino, but, but an ox. And, and the image is, is of strength. A horn of salvation God has raised up, and that horn is focused on the king. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Why does Luke say that? Because he's wanting to call us back to this text and saying, all the culmination of history has come in the person of Christ. 
Just as he spoke of the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. What was the promise of God? That all the enemies would be put down in the time of David, which is merely a picture and a pointer to the greater day when all the enemies would be put down. In order to show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Which one? Oh yes, the one he made with David, which itself is grounded in the promises that God had made with Abraham. It's with Abraham that God had said, go to your country, away from your people, and I will, what? Make you into a great nation. I will give you a great name. That's that's what's happening right here in 2 Samuel 7. Those are the very promises that God is saying, David, all of those promises are being focused on you. It's all about the promises God started with Abraham to what end? God focuses affection on Israel so that through you, Abraham, all the world could be blessed. So the very curse that started in Genesis 3 because of mankind's sin and the deception of the devil, God said, the woman's going to have an offspring and she'll go head to foot to head. He'll go foot to head with the serpent. Serpent's on the ground. Offspring of the woman will be standing. And the serpent will bruise his heel, and he will bruise the serpent's head. From those inner beginning workings of hope, God blossoms this promise through Abraham, through David, all the way to Jesus, in order that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Or how about how the New Testament begins? Why does it say it this way? If not to connect it with those promises. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus. He is the son of David. The son of Abraham. Yes, Jesus Messiah. So you get Hannah's mention of the anointed one linked up now with David and with Abraham in order that the world might be blessed. And just so you can see how it's working, so this is a kingly trajectory. Then in chapter 2, someone shows up in Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. And then at Matthew 28, all authority has now been given to this one like a son of man who's risen from the dead, who's conquered death, giving you and I hope that any sin, any problem with bitterness or lust or doubt can be overcome because he has all authority. He indeed is the king of kings. And on the basis of his universal authority, he gives us now the global mission to make disciples. In order that the global curse might gradually and progressively be being overcome in these last days. Here's Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Good news! That's what I'm preaching, Paul says. It's good news that finds its source in God. But not just randomly. No, it was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Scripture. Old Testament. So the Old Testament anticipates the good news. And that's what we're preaching today. Or, I'm just a teacher. Um, And... So, it's coming from the Old Testament Scriptures, and what is it about? It concerns the Son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh. So he's son of David, but not only that, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. So all I'm saying, I'm just trying to let us see that there's this trajectory building straight out of 2 Samuel 7 that says, don't stop at Solomon. For us to have an eternal throne, we need either a perpetual kingship, and by the time you get to the end of Kings, Judah itself has been put down. Their kings come to an end. And when Haggai and Zechariah return to the land, when Malachi is preaching, when Ezra and Nehemiah are there, there's no king, no Davidic king. When Jesus comes on the scene, there's no Jewish king. The Romans are in charge. And yet there was this preserved biological descendant. It's why Luke and Matthew start their books out with genealogies in order to identify that Jesus is linked with Dave. And Luke doesn't only go back to Dave. He goes all the way back to Adam in order to identify. So the very last word in Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 3, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. In order to show this is a royal trajectory, straight in line. Here's the very last mention of Jesus in the Bible. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Why does he connect that? Because everything hinges on this promise. God has been building these promises bigger and bigger, but now what's declared is that it's only going to be funneled, not simply through Judah generally, not simply through a king from Judah, but specifically through a son of God in the line of David. All of it's just funneled right there, and Jesus is the one from whom it comes. This is a shot just below what is believed to be the palace of David on the southern side of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So the Temple Mount is up here in the north, where presently the Alaska Mosque and the Dome of the Rock are. And then there's a little finger that jets out here, down at the bottom. During David's day, none of this was here. All there was was this little eight-acre plot called the city of David. And then Solomon came, and Solomon added the big clump that's up here now. He put his temple on it, and uh, sorry, his palace, and then he put, um, and that's where the temple of Yahweh was also built. But this is, so this is the section up here. I, I've got other pictures. I should have uh, maps and stuff. Um, so, can you see it? Um, so, so picture this little circle up here. That's the Temple Mount. And then down at the bottom, there's this little eight-acre thumb. And this is standing just south of the spot where they believe David's, they've, they've in archaeological excavation, found what they believe to be the Palace of David and, all the other, and many of the other kings. But the Palace of David, it's down toward the bottom, and it's looking southward toward the Sea of Galilee. Sorry, toward the, the Dead Sea. So straight down, it's a ridge. It's a ridge, that's right. The, so this is the present old city Jerusalem. Here's the 
Temple Mount. Alaska Mosque is right here. Dome of the Rock is right here. And the city of David jets out at the bottom. In the time of David, this is all there was. In the time of Solomon, it expanded up to this point. Then in the time of Hezekiah, which we'll get to sometime in the next couple of weeks, um, it expanded. And then during the time of um, Ezra and Nehemiah, it, remember Babylon came in, they destroyed it all. And when then the returnees came back, everything was in devastation, and Nehemiah came and rebuilt the walls. But when you read Nehemiah, the walls that he built are only this. They're right around here. That's it. Just this small little bit of Jerusalem. So David's palace is right here. And where, I took the, where the picture was taken is right here, looking south, straight, straight along the side of the hill. Sometime it might be fun. It's never my focus in here because, um, because I am at heart a preacher who wants the word to be singing. And, um, but to have some context where I could just give a, a historical geographical walk through all of Israel to just give you a glimpse of what it all looks like, and um, that would be fun sometime if you wanted to. Now, see if you can track my thinking here. This is an important issue. If you've got your Bibles open, look at the text, verse 14 and 15, 14 through 16, rather. So the mention of the eternal throne is verse 13. Then I will be a father to him, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. But I will not depart from him like I did Saul. Your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever. So the question at hand is, how does the obedience that will not in any way take away the promise, that's that's what we have here, regardless of how bad it gets, I'm not going to depart. That's what God says. And the throne will be established forever. How are we to understand the relationship of the call to obedience and the perpetual promise? So what I want to do is look at how David, how Solomon, and how God himself understood they interpret these words for us. And so I don't want to get, I I want to follow their lead. And the way that they interpret it, if all I had was 2 Samuel 7, I could be led to think something else. Look at David. Here's when he's passing the baton to his son. He's on his deathbed, and Solomon is getting the throne. I'm I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. I love that statement. What does that mean? Unpack it for me. Keep the charge of Yahweh your God to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, and His testimonies, according to what is written in the Torah of Moses. It's a beautiful unpacking, at least by relationship of manhood, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Solomon, keep the charge of Yahweh in order that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that Yahweh may carry out His promise which He spoke concerning me. How does that work? Keep so that He can carry it out. 
Well, what if he doesn't keep it? That's my question. Notice how David words it. If. If you, if, sorry, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. That sounds a lot, that just sounds different to me. It feels different. Because when I was in 2 Samuel 7, this is what I heard. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. And now David's telling Solomon, here's what God said, if your sons are careful, then you shall not lack a man on the throne forever. That's David, here's Solomon. This is what he heard. He's praying, dedicating in the midst of the dedication prayer of the temple. Now therefore, O Yahweh, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him. Keep it, God. You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. That's an intriguing little statement there. As you have walked before me. As if David had walked rightly before God the whole time. And here's God's response. As for you, Solomon, if you will walk before me, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Internally, I'm wrestling with what do I do with that contingency, that conditionalness of this eternal promise? Can you feel it? Can you see that the text appears to be saying an obedience is going to be necessary for the throne to be eternal? That's the king's perspective, but when I read 2 Samuel, it seemed to be Regardless of where his obedience is at, the throne will be eternal. So here's my best attempt right now to try to put those two together. Number one, later texts outside of Samuel refer both to the faithfulness of the Divine Father, your throne will be established forever, and the necessity for the faithful Son. Heed my voice. And I don't think we can downplay either one. So that God is indeed making His promises for an eternal dynasty contingent on the sustained loyalty of this obedient son. Is it bad for God to have conditions? Like a call to perfect obedience. Number two. While the promises of God are sure, the presence of an obedient son is necessary for the promises to be realized. What I want to propose is that we have in the Davidic covenant a promise of perpetual, of perpetual eternal dynasty, but the possibility that any individual son could forfeit his right to that throne based on his obedience 
And an obedience is not an external thing. It's an obedience that flows from the heart. You obey because you trust that God's way is best. You disobey when you trust that someone else's promises are better. So this is an obedience that doesn't exalt the king. Think about Deuteronomy 17. The king is to be a man of the word. That is a man of dependence who has the word with him, but not only with him, he reads from it every single day so that fear in God may be elevated, so that he will not sin, so that he will not lift himself up over his brother, number one, so that he will continue to be obedient, number two, and so that his his dynasty may last forever, number three. The king's obedience, what's being called for, is not a self-exaltation. It's it's a life of radical God-exaltation that none of us have ever experienced personally. But we've read about it. What I want to propose is that the way that Samuel and Kings is set up, it's pushing you and I, the reader, to say, how is it going to be possible Because that king is a lot like me, and I am prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And yet God is saying the eternal dynasty is going to be contingent on the obedience of this Son of God, servant of God. And so the text is intentionally setting us up to look way beyond David, to someone greater than David, who the Lord Himself would have to provide. Solomon himself in his prayer says, Oh, there is, none, there is no one who does not sin, God. I recognize that. So in light of the waywardness of the human heart, God will have to provide the obedient son for the covenant to be maintained. Are you tracking the trajectory? And I, th- I think this is the biblical trajectory. We're supposed to feel this tension all through the Old Testament. All the extended discussion of disobedience and lack of failure is designed to help us say, God, when will you act? When will you send him? Because this whole natural progression thing is not ending up where we hoped it would end. You need to intrude in some unique, extraordinary way. Creating a real son... Raising up, that is, not creating, raising up a true, real, obedient servant son who will bring you all the glory and yet who will not be bound up by the sinfulness of the human soul. So what I want to do is just look at a few texts that Set this that really do point in this trajectory and suggest God says He will do just that. Look with me in 2 Samuel 7. We go to David's response to God's prayer, God's declaration. Here's David's prayer back to God Who am I, O Lord? Verse 18. O Lord Yahweh, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes. To you, this is nothing. But to me, this is massive. That you would say that in my house, all the world would be blessed. That it's my house that would be lifted up. That that it's my house that stands in, in light of the promises of Genesis 49. That a scepter would not depart from Judah. 
Now you're saying the scepter will not depart from David. And that all the world's hopes are hinging on me. This seems so massive, but to you it's so small. That's verse 18 and 19. And then he says, You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is the law for mankind. That's the tricky phrase. The word is the law, Torah, the instruction. What does it mean that the Davidic covenant is somehow going to be instruction, not only for Israel, but for the world? So, I toyed with how much to go into this, and rather than going into it a lot, I'm just going to summarize how I understand this going right now. In Deuteronomy 17, the means for the king's influence to be pervasive and lasting is that he will be not simply a man of the word. The word used in Deuteronomy 17 is that he will be a man of the law. And within Deuteronomy, it's the keeping of the law that will serve as the instrument for missions to take place. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5, If you heed, keep my statutes and my judgments, then you will stand before the eyes of the world. It will be your wisdom and your understanding before the eyes of the world who will look in and say, Oh, what an amazing people that has a God so near to it as your God is. And what an amazing people that has a law so upright and clear. It's going to happen because Israel as a nation is keeping the law. Or Exodus 19. If you heed my voice and keep my covenant and be for me a treasured possession for all the earth is mine, then you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So just as the temple was at the center of Israel and the priests were at the temple and the nation came and gathered to the temple to meet God through the mediation of the priests, now the entire nation will serve as a kingdom of priests. To whom? To the world that needs to hear about God and meet God. And what the text is suggesting to me is that when the king rules with God on the throne of his life, he will provide a model, a pattern for what all of Israel is to be. And as he, remember, judges, it says there was no king in the land. Everyone did that was right in his own eyes. Implication, give us a king and people will stop doing what's right in their own eyes. They'll start doing what's right in God's eyes. So as this king in the Davidic covenant begins to live, as God begins to act, when God raises up this king who will be obedient, and and when the dynasty begins to be experienced as eternal, all of a sudden the law is going to be going forth. And it won't only benefit the nations because it's, I mean, Israel, because Israel's purpose is to serve as the agent of blessing to the world. That's why I think it says this will be a law for mankind. Something about the king and his loyalty. He embodies the law in himself, and it will have benefit for the world. Number two, Isaiah 55. Now, my translation is different than the ESVs. 
Um, and we're not going to go into that at the moment. Incline your ear and come to me here, that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Get that? God's going to make an everlasting covenant. That's new covenant talk. It's also linked with what God just promised David. I'll make an everlasting covenant. And then it says, the steadfast loyalties of David. The covenant is here equated with, I believe, the covenant obedience of not the old David, the new David. That something about this future David's obedience will actually be the instrument that will establish the everlasting covenant. So that the covenant and the person, the son of David, are somehow even equated. And then what does it say? Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. He's a leader and a commander to the peoples. For the peoples, that sounds at least broader than Israel. And in the context of Isaiah, if we say, well, what would those steadfast loyalties of David be? It's bound up in Isaiah 53. The obedience of the servant all the way to the cross. It's the means by which a sinful people could be brought into right relationship with God. In Isaiah, and I think he's meditating on the, how is this going to happen? Because you don't just need an obedient king. God also has to deal with the fact that you've got an entire people throughout the ages who have been rebellious, and how can God justly have a relationship with them? Somehow the obedience of this king is directly related to his substitution so that his obedience is somehow going to stand for the obedience of all the rebellious. So his life becomes not only a pattern. How is is it a law for mankind? It's not only a pattern. We follow the way we act like he obeyed. It's not only through his instruction guiding us in the way we should go. It's in the very fact that he obeys God and his righteousness gets imputed to us. And on that basis, God is justly able to enjoy, we are able to be part of this relationship with God and not receive his just wrath. Would God do it? Well, that's that's how Paul worded it. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Remember I said, left to themselves, man is wayward. God's going to have to intrude into space and time and create the obedient one. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's 2 Samuel 7. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient perfectly all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God's highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. That's 2 Samuel 7. That is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that He is the Sovereign One, the Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
This text humbled me this week, humbled me this morning. Even as I recognized God, I could have never cut it. As elevated as I at times make myself, I couldn't have fit the bill for being the son who is radically fully surrendered to your word. The perfect king is not me. I struggle to be the dad that you call me to be. The husband, the professor, the Sunday school teacher. But you've sent the perfect son whose very name is Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. And He's come on my behalf and now allowed me to partake in His eternal kingdom. And the house that Solomon built was only a picture of when you would come in flesh and inhabit, dwell, tabernacle among us and create an even greater house. So that when Solomon's temple fell and Haggai and Zechariah built the new temple and people were grieving because they were over 70 and they had seen the earlier temple of Solomon and this new temple was nothing and God said the greater glory, this house will have greater glory than anything Solomon ever tasted. And we are the temple of God. All of this in this trajectory that finds its ultimate climax in the person of Jesus. Now let me see how I can do here. We've got three minutes. The David and Goliath, sorry, the David and Bathsheba story is not mentioned in the book of Chronicles. It didn't have to be mentioned in the book of Kings or Samuel. It didn't have to be here because the chronicler didn't have to include it in his portrait of David. So one of the things that it asks me is, that it, one question that raises in my mind is, when we read this whole story of David's sins of rape and murder and arrogance that were, even though it, it's worded a little differently, but it's the exact same phrase that we see in Judges. What's, what David did was evil in the sight of Yahweh. That's the six times in Judges. That's what we're told they did. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil in the sight of the Lord. And what David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Not only that, the prophet called it a despising of God's Word. Evil in God's sight. And then David affirms, yes, this was real sin. And yet, we read... Oh, did I... Huh. I didn't create the tension that I wanted to. There was a... Uh, I had a, another slide that I, I thought was there that goes through and identifies how the book of Kings talks about David. I know it's here. Where is it? Listen to how the book of Kings talks. 
As for you, Solomon, if you'll walk before me, as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, that's what David was like. He was. And they're reading the same story we're reading. You, Jeroboam, I have not have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all of his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. David's being lifted up as an ideal figure. How? And Abijam walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh, his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, Yahweh... His God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting his, up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. That's exactly the opposite statement that we read in 2 Samuel 12. David did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. And then the narrator tells us he still has the same book we do except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So what's going on? How can David truly be viewed as the standard upon which all other kings in, the ancient, in, in Israel were weighed? And yet, they're reading the same story that we're reading. How can David be the ideal or standard in view of his forthright sins? And why would the narrator have included the case of Uriah the Hittite, which is not even found in 1 Chronicles. To me, this is very hopeful, and I hope it puts the rest of the book in perspective. Number one, it gives a message of warning. Why include the sins? So that we recognize that if even the king of Israel is not separated from God's judgment, who do I think I would be? Because God takes sin very seriously, and no man will get away with it. Number two, it's a message of challenge. How did David respond when Nathan the prophet came against him? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew an upright spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew an upright spirit within me. Psalm 51. What's the historical line at the top? Which David sang when he was approached by Nathan the prophet with respect to his sin against Bathsheba. All throughout Samuel, when David is, when he's portrayed as a sinner, he helps us know how we should respond when we look too much like him. So it's a challenge. If you know you're in sin, don't stay in sin. Let your heart be broken like David's was broken and turn to the only one who can supply. It stresses David's humanness, his depravity, and his neediness, just like you and me. It represents David as a model of repentance after sin. And it proclaims God's grace and restoration and covenant renewal. I think that's why the story is included. 
Because we need to see that God can meet someone. Someone that looks a lot like David. Not as the ideal Israelite, but as the real Israelite. A message of warning, a message of challenge, and finally, a message of hope. The contrast between the ideal and the real highlights the need for one greater than David, the ultimate Son of God, the ultimate servant, the Messiah. And that's the purpose of the book, to help us get our eyes off of David in hope of the ultimate one who would come, the Son of David. Second Samuel 22, I can't go through all this, paints the ideal picture of Israel's king who honors God wholly with his life and thus enjoys sustained blessing. But in the context, 2 Samuel 2, 22, is just after David's own sin, which tells us this is an ideal portrait, not a real portrait, perfectly. And so it gets our eyes looking ahead in hope. The favor that this one in 2 Samuel 2 would enjoy would only be enjoyed by those following the ultimate son. So here's my synthesis. In his loyalty, David represents all that God intends for his people. In his repentance, David portrays the need of all Israel before a holy God. And in his whole life, David shows the need for one greater than David, who can in whole represent God to the people and the people to God. Leave today celebrating what Christ has done for us that you and I could not have fit the bill. And we're supposed to see no one could fit the bill. Three-fourths of the Bible is given to us as Old Testament so that we could feel it. No one can fit the bill. No one can do what God commanded of His kings to do until Christ comes. And He has come. And those who trust Him enjoy God's favor, unrelenting and undeserved. This is just a little ways up the hill, looking north toward the Mount of Olives. The Temple Mount is just to the left, around the corner, on on the city of David here. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you that Jesus has come, that he was the obedient son that the tension of the Old Testament has been resolved and you have proven to us how you can be both just and the justifier of all who believe. We thank you for Christ's sustained obedience even to the point of death. He has granted us pardon. He supplied us with a pattern. And because he's been risen from the dead and is always with us, we have power to be who you've called us to be. And yet in a way that doesn't replace grace, and in a way that exalts all that Christ is for us. To him be the glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. 
For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His Glory in Christ.